So you have to kind of have a, a real sort of love affair with your potential at the same time as you recognize areas in which you aren't where you could be. This is Glenn Murphy with NC Systema, and this is Systema for Life. So first off, the whole concept of mastery, how do you, how do you kind of feel about it? Um, can you ever really truly master something? And what does it mean to call yourself a master of something? What are you a master of, personally? Um, I don't think I'm a master of anything. I think mm. it's not a destination so much as an orientation and a path. Yeah. To mm. me, it's, you're, you know, I'm constantly leaning in. Yeah. You know, the day, like, so if I, if I were to pick one thing, it would be coaching. Okay. And yeah. and the day that I think I can do it yeah. is the day that I screw up and I'm overconfident. Yeah. So for part for me part of mastery and mm. and one of the reasons I think that is I teach other people how to be coaches. Yeah. Which is which is a, a great way to fool yourself into thinking you're better than you are. Mm. When a bunch of other people want to know what you would do. Yeah. In a given circumstance. And so it's very important for me to continually record my coaching sessions and send them to people that I regard as my mentors hmm. um, and to, to constantly assume that there's more to learn. Okay, so there's this assumption that if you, if you look at mastery as a label, like I, I did it, I arrived, I'm the master of this now, then you no longer need to learn. And therein lies the beginning of your downfall, right? When you've stopped learning at some point. So why is that, do you think? Do you think it's because the skills that you have decay if they're not maintained with a little bit of pressure? Or do you think it's because other people simply catch up and overtake you because that's the pace of development? No, I think it's internal. Okay. I mean, you know, certainly, you know, we are, we're all like on the shoulders of giants. So mm -hmm. whatever, whatever someone has accomplished, you know, if you look at sports records or, mm. or literature or music, that we're all building off of what other people have done. So it's, mm. it's hard to talk about individual accomplishments yeah. in that context. Mm. No, I, th I think it's that, um, that, that mastery, like first of all, we're, we're only talking about mastery of things that are hard. Yeah. Right, like, I, okay, I, I mastered tying my shoes. Mm. Have you though? How fast can you do it? Is there a Guinness yeah. book, a yeah. world record for that? I'm sure there's somebody that can do it in like a ridiculously small amount of time, like one of those Japanese guys who can stack 4,000 cups in a second or something like that. Right. I bet there's somebody somewhere in the world that can tie their shoes in half a second, right? Good, so good have point. you mastered tying your shoes? You know? yeah, well, I guess to my satisfaction. Yeah, well, they get, yeah. So, so it's an interesting thing, right? Because we talk in Sistema, we work on things that you'd think we've mastered fairly well, like breathing, right? You, like, I'm a master of breathing. I've mm. done it every day. I've, I've, I haven't skipped a day in my whole life, and I'm really good at it. I don't stop, all that <laughs> kind of stuff, right? I don't do it badly unless I'm sick, you know? Um, or walking, you know, have you mastered walking? Now, you, you might have, what, what standard would you hold to somebody for mastering walking? Is it the ability to walk X number of miles per day? Or is it the ability to walk really, really quickly, like speed walking, like Olympic style? Or is it the ability to walk on a tightrope? Do you know? There's, there's so many different kind of aspects to this whole thing, or is it just kind of getting around, or the ability to walk for 100, you know, 100 odd years of your life successfully? It's like, where do you kind of draw the line? It's like, and so, so with something like that, I think that comes back to your point that you never truly master walking. It just depends where you draw the line of what's what's sufficient for me. 
right? Mm -hmm. And somebody else could always draw the line higher and say, well, you're not a master of that then. You're not a master of coaching. You're really good at it, right? You're excellent. You're better than 99% of the population, but maybe there's somebody else who's even better. So now they're the master. Or are you both masters? I don't know. Right. Mm. Well, to me, it's again, it's about the slope of the line mm. as opposed to where I am on the line. Right. That, okay. the, the, the mastery is an, is an approach where I'm always looking for feedback to improve. Ah, to see, that's an interesting one. So that's how you look at mastery, right? And so, so that ties in with the old oriental maxim of like, you know, if the cup of knowledge is full, then there's no room for anything else. So this whole idea that if you get to a black belt or something, and then you consider yourself having mastered it, um, then you're kidding yourself. That should be the point at which things start and you really kind of get into delving deep onto what it is that you know and what you think you know and going further in. So you hold yourself to that philosophy, right? But I'm sure there are other people who don't. I'm sure there are plenty of people who feel like, I've mastered it and they don't look at mastery as like a, an ongoing process that lasts for their whole life, right? Even chess masters, I mean, grand, you know, in chess you've got masters and grandmasters, right? They have to invent a new category, presumably because so many master chess players weren't good enough, uh, that kind of thing, right? They continue playing their whole lives. You know, people like Bobby Fischer, stuff like that, they're constantly thinking and, uh, or, you know, the, you ever seen the movie Jiro Dreams of Sushi about the master yeah. sushi maker who's yeah. like, you know, he's 80 years old and he's every single night he's still coming out with new combinations and he can't stop thinking about ways he can perfectly cut and present fish on a piece of rice you know it's like for his whole life he's never stopped and that movie was about mastery in its, in its wider sense right and that's why it was so successful I think it's that dedication to ongoing excellence and is that what it is is it a dedication to excellence as opposed to like a destination well I think it's about ultimately it's about who we are as a person that the, we're, it looks like we're working on a piece of fish mm. or on a movement uh, or on a skill, hmm. but ultimately we're working on ourselves. Hmm. And so, you know, that's why, like, like, well, why would you want to be a master at something trivial, yeah. like cutting a piece of fish yeah. or, you know, moving carved pieces on a board? Hmm. Like, that's not really important for humans, hmm. right? Or making a movie or being a dancer, the things that, that feel less about survival and more, you know, sort of frivolous. Yeah. But ultimately it's it's about we're working on our ourselves. The whatever the external is always the metaphor for can I become the best version of myself? That's yeah, it's a really good point. So it's a, if you're not working on yourself, maybe you're not on the path to mastery then, right? Maybe you're just trying to get good at something or achieve something and that's that's probably a different thing. If you're practicing something just with a view to like, well, I'm going to get this done. I'm going to have, I'm going to beat this time. I'm going to lose this amount of weight. I don't know, or something like that, you know, just, or be better than the other people around me, comparing yourself to some arbitrary benchmark, then maybe you're not really on the path to mastery. Maybe you're, you're looking, you're on the path to competition. You're on the path to do mm -hmm. something else. Maybe mastery has very little to do with competition. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, for, for most domains of our life, we don't need to approach mastery. So mm. for me, you know, tying my shoelaces mm. it was one of those domains. Yeah. Um, now I got I got really interested in mastery around um, chords. Like mm. I, like I got really interested in how to wrap my headphone cords, my my earbud cords, so that they they don't tangle and I can 
get them, you know, anytime. I actually practice that because I, okay. I want to be good at that. Huh. Or when I go, you know, play a gig or I've got, you know, music, yeah. um, you know, guitar cables and yeah. quarter inch, how to tie. Like I spend a lot of time thinking about that because it gives me pleasure. Right. And I'm, if I see someone do it a different way, I'm like, oh, teach me that. Right. Okay. Um, well, like tying knots or something. Isn't yeah. It? Brian, uh, Brian Jones, who I think was on uh, last week on the podcast, he's like a former, uh, you know, Air Force engineer. And uh, he did a lot of growing up in the kind of cowboy country in Montana and stuff like that and you know did some living off the land things and he's really good at knots he can tie like 50 knots and whip them around and you know he helped us build a prevalent machine that we have like by just with knots at first mm. and then kind of reinforcing it and that kind of stuff and he said he was on a flight back from um, Chicago or something back to North Carolina and he was sitting next to some guy and uh, and he had like a little two pieces of rope and he was working on his own knots trying to make them better and better like that uh, and there's this big chunky guy that was sitting next to him eating all the food on the aeroplane and, and Brian's like look at this piece of crap you know it's like he's not worth anything or something he just started to make judgments based on the way the guy looked and the guy's like you know you could do that better and like yeah. uh, and uh, Brian's like really okay and he goes give me that and he handed it to him and with one hand he tied like a perfect bowline knot <laughs> uh, and he was like I used to be in the merchant navy and in the navy the, the saying is you have to have one arm to hold you on the ship and the other one to tie the knot so if you can't tie the knot with one hand it's useless like that and he did it in a second and Brian's <laughs> like wow and so it was a lesson for not judging a book by its cover and also in that the, there's there's paths here right this guy was to him like a master of knots and that kind of stuff right but it's interesting what you can choose to work on like you said it's a yeah and obviously that's a practical skill but how many times does he need to tie a knot at high speed right so so maybe he doesn't do that because he thinks he's going to be in a survival situation where he needs to know 50 types of knots you probably don't need to know two or three good ones <laughs> unreliably informed right um but he gets a lot of pleasure out of that process of the thinking and the and the dexterity and and just the improvement at that uh, as he goes along it's not to show off to anybody it's just a, um for himself right see to me the essence of mastery at that level hmm. is a form of i don't i don't want to call it sort of really like kind humility hmm. Because like I'm good at something, why on the in the world do I want to try something else mm. that I'm going to feel crap about? Yeah. Right. So so Brian can tie knots with two hands, and now he's going to challenge himself to tie it with one hand. He's going to feel like a baby. Yeah. He's yeah. going to be uncomfortable. Mm. He's he's going to get frustrated. Mm. And so if if you're the sort of person who gets you know it's like this whole Carol Dweck you know yeah. fix versus growth mindset. Sure. If you're happy where you are and you're yeah. threatened by feeling inadequate again, mm. you can't push forward on mastery. Yeah. So but so so it's a sense of humility like I could get better, mm. but also it's not like, you know, like um Carol Dweck talks, talks about uh, John McEnroe, the tennis player, yeah. who was brilliant, one of the best players but ever. Not, not humble in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> but also not, <laughs> yeah. in, not into mastery. He was into mm. winning. Okay. Yeah. And so there were all sorts of things he refused to do hmm. to make himself better because he insisted that, you know, on just being his best yeah. all the time. Okay. And so you have to kind of have a, a real sort of love affair with your potential at the same time as you recognize areas in which you aren't where you could be. Yeah, that's really interesting because it's almost like there are, you can vacillate sometimes in bringing it back to systemic training for a minute um, between these two mindsets of one that's kind of like humble, oh, I'm in this to learn more about myself and examine my shortcomings and, and uh, discover more about movement, discover more about uh, emotions, discover more about how it relates to life, in addition to learning some useful skills, physical skills as well, right? Um, for health and for self-defense and things like that as well. Um, but sometimes you can get into the, I, I can feel this anyway, and I can see it in students too, where you vacillate between that kind of humble kind of uh, 
guru state almost like it's almost like you're in a meditation when you're training and then this kind of feeling of like i've got it i've got something right and you and you want to be able to feel competent you want some little benchmark of like i did that thing and i put that guy down and it's not even necessarily a need to compete with a specific person it's just a need at least to compete with your former self to say like all right at the very least i'm better at this now than I was last week, or I'm better than this than I was last year. But if you're truly in that kind of open, humble state where you're learning more about yourself, you shouldn't even care if you're better at this thing than you were like a month ago, right? If, if you have a little downturn or an apparent downturn in your um, competence in a set of movements, or you just feel stiff. And these things change from day to day with psychological states and emotional states too anyway. Um, then it shouldn't bother you if the, if the whole process is just about noticing these things and being the observer of your movement and being the observer of your emotions and just trying to let natural movement and responses manifest themselves and none of that should matter at all but it does doesn't it you see people it matters a lot to people all the yeah. time there's very few people who can maintain that state for a long time yeah. so so what's the answer how should we pull ourselves from one state to the other well i think both states are useful mm. i think the state of feeling like damn i'm good yeah is a you know it releases some it squirts some good brain chemicals okay. into us it makes it easier yeah to get through the harder times yeah. Um, I think the question is, you know, so if we're feeling like, oh man, I'm, I'm doing so great, yeah. whether like the next thing we know we're, we're on our ass and someone okay. just took us down because we got overconfident and we stopped, you know, we, so again, it's a corrective. Mm. Like, so I think part of mastery is overstepping mastery mm. a little bit. Okay. Um, that we can't be, you know, 100% on this slope all the time, that, that being, yeah. being human means our human uh, pride will arise. And, yeah. and so we're not trying to eliminate, we're, we're, we don't think we can eliminate pride, but we're working with it yeah. as just another thing, just like our, you know, the stronger, bigger, stronger uh, partner that we're, we're sparring with. We're wrestling with that as much as we're wrestling <laughs> with the other person. Yeah, yeah interesting. So maybe a, a tiny bit of that is needed for motivation. Um, but then when it, then if that becomes the raison d'etre, then like with Macamro, the, the, the reason you know, you want to do it is just to win, 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 and that kind of stuff, then it starts to get in the way of your further development, right? That you start to lose sight of the, of the big picture of what you're doing. Is that? Yeah, yeah. I think, if you, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're just self-congratulatory all the time, then mm. you're no longer progressing. Yeah. It's like, why would you? Yeah, and Vladimir has talked a lot about this, even in his like, earlier podcast. He says, you know, the first thing you sort of say, you know, um, what brought you to teaching? Why did you decide to teach? All that kind of stuff. And he says, I never wanted to be a master at all. Right. I, I, I don't even like this label. I don't like this um, label that people put on you because it almost in, in his view, he sort of said it almost guarantees you're going to have extra problems. Right. That people are going to be looking up to you. People are going to be looking to you to demonstrate the right thing. People are going to, you know, hold you up on the pedestal or something or exaggerate your abilities. And then you feel some sort of need to I'm paraphrasing. He didn't say all of this, but you feel some sort of need to to live up to that label. Right. And in doing so, the pride comes again. Right. Yeah. And then you get into trouble. And he said he's seen it with instructors that he has. Right. That you give them a little bit of responsibility. You give them a little, you know, let them lead a class when they're not instructors yet. Or you send them off to do a seminar or something like that. And then immediately they start actually to um, their, their ability and their attitude starts to, to get worse, right? As soon as you give somebody some responsibility, it's like, it's, it, it's the beginning of the end kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? And that kind of thing. So it's, it's a really difficult thing. And it takes more work. The closer you get to mastery, the harder it is to avoid the enemy of ego, basically, mm -hmm. right? That whole thing, so. Right, well, the closer you get, mm -hmm. you know, the, few, the, the slower your progress. Yeah. Right, mm -hmm. so that can be frustrating. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I mean, for, for looking at Vladimir, like that was what he needed. 
Yeah. Right? Because he's extremely humble. It's, he mm. seems to be someone who takes himself, his development very seriously of, yeah. of being a good person, being a role model. Mm. So if he had been just, you know, a schlub with a dojo somewhere yeah. and nobody knows him yeah. and he's not on the cover of Black Melt magazine, mm. then it would have been, you know, he wouldn't have had to develop. Yeah. Resistance okay. to, to pride. Okay, so so it's a struggle then. But mastery can be a necessary struggle as well as a growth mindset and as well as a state of humility. It's a lot of things. It sounds like. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a struggle. Yeah. Like life is a struggle. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Cool. So getting getting off the concept of mastery for a minute, let's let's, let's look at a little bit of like the uh, the practice of mastery, mm. right? And we covered this quite a bit in our earlier podcast, I think, on, on practice and, and different ways of looking at it. Um, and so obviously there's this kind of whole um, Jeff Colvin, talent is overrated, 10,000 hours to mastery kind of idea, right? Um, which in some ways has been kind of half discredited, but in other ways holds up. So if you take it as that typically, if you look at somebody who's achieved some degree of mastery, be it in music, be it in languages, be it in some sporting um, endeavor or something like that, that they look like they have talent, right? They just look like um, they have have some natural ability or affinity for, for doing this thing and it's incredible. Usually when you delve into it and you research it, whether it's Beethoven or Kobe Bryant or whoever it is, you see that they started very early, they started very young um, and they practiced for like a minimum of 10,000 hours and usually a lot more than that. Normally we're looking at 15,000, 20,000 hours. And then when you look at um, um, it even analyzed kind of violin players and you know at the uh, was it the uh, famous music school up in uh, New York not Juilliard that's the dance one isn't it there's another music the school str the string school or? might be yeah it might be the string school I can't remember where they did the yeah. study but then they, they looked at the way that people practice and the people who um, achieved what their presumably their assessors would degree of some, uh, say with some sort of degree of mastery in kind of um, orchestral violin they were showing that the people who kind of put the minimum number of hours in that they would just show up and play while they were at school and then they kind of check out when they go home or do like a, a minimum um became very very average right there and they they did not rise to the top and perhaps not surprisingly it might seem obvious the people who went home and they just played apparently for the sheer love of it um got a lot better and all that kind of stuff but it's like there's, there's a there's this relationship between how much you enjoy something and how much you're going to practice, right? If you try and force yourself to just grind it out, um, you try and master something that you're just really not interested in, you're probably right. in for a, for a long, long slog and you may never master it because you just, you don't enjoy it and all that kind of stuff, right? right. Um, but but the well, simple so. fact of the matter is that it takes, it seems to take a minimum number of hours. There's no big shortcut to that. There's no big brain chunking art of learning. Like, no, I'm just gonna put 3000 hours in and I'll achieve the same amount of mastery. You really don't. That's, um, but that's not to say that 10,000 hours guarantees you mastery either. Um, it's kind of like a benchmark minimum. And if you, um, if you, you can do 10,000 hours of practice and have it be useless practice, right? And not achieve mastery at all. Um, or you can practice extraordinarily mindfully and you can get there solidly within 10,000 hours. I think that's what is useful about that kind of, um, that research and that idea is just that there's a minimum amount of graft and grind you're gonna have to put into this thing, no matter how clever you think you are, no matter how well you think you can circumvent the rules, probably there's a minimum amount of time you're gonna have to devote to this thing. Um, and that's gonna come with an attitude. You have to open yourself up to want to use that amount of time. Like my wife will never learn to play the guitar. I know this because she's asked me to teach her a couple of times and she picks it up and she tries to play a note and she has difficulty getting the basic sounds out of it and let alone a chord is difficult and she's like, oh, this is stupid. You know, so, that kind of, so just getting the note. Whereas playing the piano, you can 
hit it and it makes a note at least, right? With the guitar or the violin, it's difficult even to get something that sounds nice out of the thing the first time, right? So you've kind of got a hurdle there to begin with. Now she will never do it because she's just not motivated enough to want to learn that. And she loves dance and she loves other things. And she, you know, practiced belly dance for a bunch of years and became very, very good, partly because she was just interested and fascinated in the culture and the movement of it. But she's never gonna learn guitar because she will not put the time in, right? Um, and she won't put the time in because she doesn't have the attitude required to put the time in. Do you see what I mean? Um, so I think there's, there's an interesting, there's some yeah. flawed as that is in some ways has been shown. I think that's an interesting um, way of looking at one parameter of what's required oh. for mastery. It's, it's practice, damn it, and it's a lot of it. Yeah. Consistency is important. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. The, the, you know, the, whether it's 10,000 hours or 2,000 hours and different mm. things you know, clearly require different amounts of time, and you can certainly mm. use neuroscience and hacks to get more efficient in your hours. But to me, yeah. the, the, the fundamental question, the fundamental yeah. issue raised by that is, you know, let's say taking it to Sistema, do you want to be Vladimir mm. or do you want to become Vladimir? Like all of us would snap our fingers and say, give me Vladimir Vasilyev skills, mm. right? But are we willing to do the things that it took Probably to, not to knowing become, what he went through in the early days. But right, so, I would get like yeah. stabbed and, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. you know, like... To carry bodies in a morgue for a few months. It's like, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. You know, so guitar, like, mm. yeah, I'd love to play guitar really well. Mm. But am I, am, do, would I, do I love playing guitar poorly mm. and pushing into, you know, doing it slightly better yeah. today? Because, it, you know, the practice definitely compounds. Mm. But if I don't love the practice... Yeah. Um, then I'm not I'm not going to achieve mastery because as soon as I get good at something I'm just gonna, how many people do you know who like play piano and they like they have their five songs yeah. that they play if they go over and there's a piano they'll just play those songs yeah, yeah. right because yeah. they can get a you know a bit of a applause for those songs but they're right. not yeah pushing themselves to get better yeah that's, that's a really interesting point that you said about do do you love being poor at it right there's I think it was a, a blog post I saw a few weeks ago and it might have been by Think maybe the gymnastic bodies, those guys, or the gold medal bodies, where the GMB ones are. Um, and it was about um, the importance of being mediocre, right? And it was really interesting. It's like if you look at your career in trying to master anything, be it music, be it gymnastics, be it martial arts, whatever it's going to be, right? At the beginning, you are going to suck. You're going to be very bad at this thing. You're going to be in baby territory trying to tie lots with your left hand, right? You're going to be very, very bad at it. And you're going to go through that window. You're going to suck, right? And then there's going to be a long, long period of time in which you are mediocre in different ways, right? You get over the abject sucking part of it and you achieve adequate skill in a, in a, whatever prerequisite number of things or you know whatever measures you would use um, to assess your ability as a violinist or a coach wherever it's going to be and you're going to be mediocre for a very 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 long time however long it takes you to do 10 20 000 hours of practice or whatever it gets to right um, and then at the top end when you start to be an expert and you're really really good at it you get to hang out there and you get to enjoy your skill and play with it and show off and do all those things Presumably, also you want to keep improving but at least you get to really enjoy yourself and show off what you can do at that point so the point that we're trying to make is, is that you have to embrace being mediocre because you're going to spend most of your time doing anything being mediocre at it, right? Mm -hmm. And this is this is something I've um, tried to get into my head with Systema as well. So no matter how good you think you are, you'll go up and you'll train with better people, you'll go to Systema HQ and you'll realize that, wow, I thought I really had that down, but I'm, on the sliding scale of things, I am at best mediocre, right, at that particular skill. And across the board, pretty much, I consider myself mediocre as a Systema practitioner, right? Mediocre. Mm -hmm. A lot of other people will come and, you know, new people will come and train and be like, wow, this guy can really move and wow, what a martial artist, how long have you been training? I'm like, oh, about 30 years. They're like, wow, you must be a master. I'm like, 
no, I'm mediocre and I'm happy with it. Yeah. You know, oh, I don't say that in the advertising. Come, learn to be mediocre with a mediocre martial arts. <laughs> you know, people expect you to have authority. And especially in America, you want to broadcast your skill and your authority and what denotes your ability to go across. But for me, I'm constantly reminding myself that that's where I'm hanging out and I'm probably going to be there for a while, right? And whenever I feel like I'm in the expert zone, um, I feel the need to go and train with people better so I can get bumped back down again and embrace my mediocrity. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that sounds kind of strange, but I think it's really important and that post resonated with me and that kind of just echoed what you just said about you have to be good at being poor at it or at least not being great at it. You have to love that process because that's where you're going to spend most of your time if you're doing it, right? You're, you're going to have to love that part, not just the being great and being able to reel off a, a language with fluency or be able to reel off a whole concerto on, a, on your violin, right? You have to be good at the, the middle stage. You have to enjoy the middle stage. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think one, the one way to do that is to, you can be as good as Vladimir right now in your attitude, hmm. right? So you can be on the, you know, I keep picturing this, you know, the, the line graph with an X, hmm. X and Y axis and there's a slope and the slope is mastery hmm. and it's the same line. The line has the same, um, you know, x plus y equals three or whatever it is. It's got the two mm. x, whatever the the um, uh, equation is yeah. exactly the same everywhere on the line. Mm. And so where you are on the line is less important than mm. than um, cleaving to that slope. Sure. And so that you can be, you know, a beginner could come to a systemic class mm. with an attitude of openness and learning and mm. paying attention to feedback and being mindful and focused, mm. and that's mastery. Even even as the externals look very mediocre. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Very cool. So th- there's another aspect to this um, that I'd like to look at, which is the idea that you can become ostensibly kind of an expert in something. You can be very, very good at something and achieve some degree of mastery and then lay off it for a while and then see your mastery diminish. Right? Mm. Um, uh, or you can make kind of leaps and bounds in your practice and you can get you know good to a certain point and then stall out and have trouble and things like that and i I think a lot of what the research has shown on this one is that um the most efficient path towards learning something really really well anything at all is this consistency it's the little and often it's like keeping it in a part of your daily life as opposed to the bursts of immersion and you know like full activity i mean those things are great for growth right let's say you want to learn a language for example my sister lives in Spain. She moved there about a year and a half ago. And one of the first things that she did was she speaks Italian, but doesn't, didn't speak Spanish. Right? Italian gives you a bit of a head start being a romance language, but she didn't have any Spanish when she moved there, really, beyond greetings, like buenos dias, all kind of stuff like that. Right? So, um, but she moved there and then immediately did like a, a Spanish immersion program, right? you know, like a couple of months where she would be, you know, wasn't allowed to speak anything but Spanish. And she's also living in a town in Spain, right, where Spanish people are everywhere and she's being forced to kind of speak it. Now, my parents, conversely, live in Spain too. They've been living there for eight, nine years, but they're like 75, retired, and surrounded by other 75-year-old retired British people playing golf, right? <laughs> or Americans and Australians. And they haven't learned very much Spanish at all. So my sister has gone way over them in mm-hmm. one year, and they've been there for eight, nine years, right? And they can, my, my parents can understand some things. They just pick things up by diffusion, but they can't really speak Spanish. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're just kind of, just bits and pieces, you know? Um, and what's really interesting to me is that Lorna has gone there and did this immersion thing, but I don't think she overtook them because she just did this full on, I'm gonna immerse myself in it and now I have it. It's like she backed that up with the daily grind of the thing, right? She's going out, she's speaking the whole time. Um, now right now there's this, uh, there's this big explosion of this uh, app called Fluent Forever. I don't know if you've heard about this. It's like, no, there's no. a guy called Gabriel, what's his name? 
Gabriel Byrne, but that's the actor. So it's, it's something like that. Anyway, it's Gabriel something like that. Um, and he wrote a book called Fluent Forever a couple of years ago, which I bought and then stuck on my shelf. I actually bought it thinking I might send it to my sister. And then she seemed like she was squared away doing what she was doing. I didn't want to bother her and be like, you should use this method. So I didn't know, right? I've learned a couple of languages, but I don't know the be all end all of how to learn languages at all. Um, so I just kind of it sat there and I never quite threw it away because I was kind of fascinated by it. And then after this last trip last month, I spent a whole month in Spain and Portugal trying to kind of pick up a few things. I use like Babel language app to kind of train myself a bit on the, you know, on the train and stuff like that when I'm going about. It's just so at least I can kind of order food and not be a total ass and mispronounce things awfully and all that kind of thing, right? But I didn't study Spanish at school, I did French. Most people in America study Spanish pretty much, right, in high school. I did French, um, so that wasn't all that much use to me there. Um, so I went there anyway, got through it, uh, but it, it reactivated my kind of passion for languages and I'm like, oh wow, and, and I remembered I just started thinking in Japanese the whole time, I don't have to use Japanese very much here, but I, I'm like, oh, I have this whole language in my head and it's here and I can use it any time. Because I was struggling to learn a new one, it just seemed to reactivate all these other circuits saying, you speak another one though, you're good, right? And the hardest thing was not trying to speak Japanese yeah. when I was in Spain, which would be useless, right? Um, but anyway, I came back and then looked at this book and I'm just fascinated by the methodology in which he says that um, translation is the worst possible thing that you can do that um, the, the most important thing you can do in the beginning is just to master the, the sounds, right? To, understand, to train your ear to the differences between the vowels and the phonemes that are in your target language. And then at least you have um, the capacity to listen to it in the same way that a baby does. And then you can statistically kind of pass out all the things you're hearing and form new words from it. But if all you've got is reading a word and you don't know how that sounds in language, then you're stuck. Then you don't get to learn anything from reading words because you have to learn two sets of things. So sounds go first and then he has associating uh, vocabulary with images, pretty much pure images, the same way that a baby would, right? It's like, what's that? It's a ball, not what's that, border, or you know, whatever it's going to be, another language or something like that, right? Um, and then the third part is the structure and the, and the sentences and the grammar, which tends to come bang in the middle, right? A bunch of words and grammar in, in traditional language teaching. Um, and I'm really fascinated by this whole idea because an, another key part of what he talks about is this space repetition, is the idea that. Um, you get consistency by not forgetting, and you have to use a specific methodology not to forget. And he uses this, these space repetition systems, which are common in apps now, I think language apps like Babel and like in the one that he's uh, flogging now. But the idea is that you, you know, when you learn something, it decays, and you remember maybe like 50% of it a day later, and then 25% like a week later, right. and then it goes down to almost nothing by inside of about three months or something like that, right? Um, but if you relearn, if you review, you actually you go from zero to fifty percent to um, eighty percent, and it goes down to sixty, and it goes up to like a hundred, and it goes down. And if you keep relearning at those intervals, critically, when you're just about to forget it, right? When you kind of prod yourself back with that, then you can almost permanently instill it into your memory and not forget it. And that's kind of the idea. And, and like memory uh, competition people do this really, really successfully to remember, you know, reams of presidents and numbers and things like that as well. It's really interesting. But anyway. Um, what I started wondering about in the midst of all of this is, is the effect of consistency in training like on mastery partly a product of not forgetting, right? So if you're the sort of person who trains really, really hard, they'll go to a seminar for a whole weekend, they'll learn a bunch of stuff from Vladimir or Martin Wheeler or some other high-end instructor, right? Um, and then you don't train hardly at all, you know, for a couple of weeks, you're putting the bare minimum, you don't revisit those concepts, you don't revisit those structures you're making with those bodies, you don't revisit those neural connections that you put together in order to make complex movements, um, then is part of your drop off just to purely to do with forgetting and just attending a regular class and kind of dropping in and at least making movements that are like that and then 
having that experience that we all have a lot of time in class, which is like, oh, wow, I forgot about this. We haven't done this for six months. And it took me a little second to get it. It's like I'd almost forgotten it, but then my body realized I'd done it before, and I did it much better than I did last time. Is there a corollary between those two things, like a physical corollary with the just the pure memory learning type thing? And I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea now and how maybe we can kind of periodize things. Well, I mean, the, the, the best thing to do is to obviously just keep showing up for training all the time. But I'm thinking in terms of people who don't get to train that often mm. and they want to train on their own and they want to improve their skill in a specific aspect of Sistema or something like that with a view to continuous development. Mm. If there's something that's really holding you back, like the ability not to do a, a, a really good squat or a push-up, um, then maybe the answer is not just to crank out as many as you can all the time. It's to um, try a specific exercise, like doing a very, very slow push-up and focusing on pushing the fist into the ground. And you do that today and tomorrow, and then you leave it for a couple of days, and then you leave it for a week, and you leave it for a month, because you can't practice everything all the time, right? If you right. if you did it, like you said in the previous podcast, if you did everything first thing in the morning, that I told you, to, you should do this every day, you should give it a go, right? Emmanuel Nolakakis is really for this. He goes, guys, you should do this every day, every day. Like, if you put all of those things together, that you have a five-hour training regimen every morning, right? It's not going to happen. Um, so how do you choose? And this might be one of the ways that you choose. You're like, well, this is a, obviously a weak point. So I'm going to periodize this, space it out, and, and at least practice it to the point where when I'm about to forget it, I do a little review um, and try and get it back into my training kind of that way. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not using this as uh, an example of like a gimmicky shortcut to mastery. I'm just sort of saying that maybe this understanding that forgetting is important, that memory is important, that physical memory, muscle memory is important too. Um, can help us um, to cope with the idea that you know we tail off and things go away and come back and that the path to mastery is not linear, right? It, it goes up and down like the stock market. There'll be bumps and then drops. And maybe, but it's, it's not linear, but maybe it's not as random as we think it is either, right? Maybe that's a lot to do with forgetting. Hmm. Hmm. What comes to mind is um, I studied Alexander Technique. Hmm. One of the key, and this is you know, sort of body, how, how, how do you move your body properly, especially when you're getting feedback, like if you lie down, yeah. you, you, know, you see this all the time, you tell people to lie straight and they're mm. like at, at an angle, yeah. mm. but they perceive themselves to be right. So, sure. so his, his thing was like, what do you do when your sense of right is wrong? Yeah. And the, one of the key concepts in the Alexander Technique is inhibition. Mm. That if you want to do something new, mm. the first task is to inhibit the old thing, mm. which is the thing that you have memorized. Yeah. So if, if you and I are doing a drill, I will do the thing that I've memorized yeah. how to do, whether, you know, whether it's flinching or moving away mm. or turtling mm. or bringing excess tension in so that the, the new thing is actually trying to override. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, in terms of forgetting, there's, there's like, okay, so let me practice this new skill enough so that the, the trigger can at least give me the chance to choose the new thing, which is one of the reasons we practice very slowly a lot, hmm. right? Because if you would just attack me right now, no matter how many hours of Sistema I've done, hmm. I'm going to like, you know, do what I would have done when I was 14. Hmm. Just like, you know, like you know, slap you, hmm. you know, shove you away, shove shove, me away with both hands. Or right, like yeah. not, not do anything, but, hmm. but through practice and through the, 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 ex, the uh, close to extinction and then reviving it, yeah. I can then build that as at least an option, yeah. um, if not a new default. Okay, yeah. Um, but then there's, of course, there's, there's the, the idea that uh, with Sistema, we're, we're, it's not like chess or violin where, sure. where everything else is static. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so we, want, we want to be able to 
um, to remain present for the unexpected, yeah. which is its own kind of practice. Yeah, absolutely. And this this is where it falls off. This I think a little bit the the, uh, the comparison with like, with languages or music in a sense. In a little bit in languages, I think the corollary is probably conversation. You know, like where you don't know what the theme's going to be. It could bounce all over the place, and you're being called upon to improvise. And the same thing in music. There's some people that can play sheet music beautifully and sit in a massive orchestra and play to a world standard, and yet they can't jam. You know, it's like, so I think that's where it kind of comes in. It's like, how do you learn to jam? Um, so I think what I'm advocating here is just that we be consistent in our practice so that we don't forget the things we've already learned. Um, that we might want to focus in on our weak points from time to time to kind of shore up the weak links in the chain. Like if your bowing sucks in violin, you might want to work on that rather than just go over and over again and just accept that your bowing sucks and see if you can kind of get around the rest of it, right? If your accent sucks in a language, it doesn't matter how much vocabulary you learn, you're not going to be understood. You won't get the ball over the net, right? Nobody's going to hit it back. Um, so it's worth focusing on the small points, but then that done, right? If you, if you make consistency the habit, if you make humility and an ongoing commitment to learning the habit, if you make making it a part practice a part of your everyday because you enjoy the habit, then you just that's it. You set it and you forget it. Like that's what I do, and then mastery will come as a result of that consistency and that attitude. Do you see what mm -hmm. I mean? Um, but I think there, um, you have to get out of your own way first, and then you have to allow all of that to come through, and then maybe all of those things—the inhibition, the uh, the memorization, the the integration of all of that kind of stuff happens as a as a natural emergent property of the way that system is structured the training is structured right as long as you don't enforce some other force structure over the top of it does that kind of make sense yeah well in, ter mm. in terms of you know just ego mm. to you know to be able to let go of the result yeah to focus on the process because you know i'm as, as a as a great grand master of ultimate, which mm. uh, which means I'm 50 plus. Yeah. Um, I'm aware that I'm not as fast as I used to be. My reflexes are, and they aren't going to get better, mm. right? I'm not going to. I'm not. Whatever I do now, I'm not going to attain what I what I had at 17 and 18. Yeah. Which means you know. Basically, I'm talking about mortality. Like mm. all of our skills are going to degrade. Eventually, our bodies will fail. Sure. So that if we become so attached to our identity as masters, mm. then eventually it's going to make us miserable. Because mm. I don't, you know, at some point we start going in the other direction. Sure. Yeah. And that's got to be okay too. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. That's a, yeah, go on. Okay, so um, so for the end of it, what I'd like to kind of, um, given that I don't consider myself a master of Sistema, and uh, so it would be hard for me to kind of offer advice to people for like, how do you master Sistema specifically, I'd like to turn this completely in a cop out and go all the way back to um, Vladimir's specific advice um, for achieving mastery in the Russian system. And this is taken directly from his old um, Russian system guidebook, which is now uh, kind of out of print, they're not reprinting them. I don't know whether it's because in some ways feel like it's moved on since then and Vladimir feels like there are, there are different emphases to be had but I think there are some real gems in this um, if, and, and this goes back quite a lot of years. So here is uh, Vladimir's 10 guidelines for achieving mastery in the Russian system. Um, so number one, harmonize your life. If you live in harmony with yourself, nature and people around you, well let's try that one again, I muffed it. Number one, harmonize your life. If you live in harmony with yourself, with nature, and with the people around you, evil in the form of an attacker is far less likely to present itself. Bad situations are far less likely to occur. Living, living in harmony with yourself and all that's around you is also essential for true mastery of the Russian system. Respect for others and the fragility of the human body breeds a respect for your own skills and opens up new levels of ability. Number two, don't be aggressive. 
This may seem contradictory, but it's the essence of the Russian martial art. If you can avoid any confrontation, do so. Use the intuition and body awareness the Russian system teaches you to see possible trouble coming and avoid it. If you must take action, be secure that your mastery of the Russian martial art will provide you with superior firepower. Devotion to the principles of the system will serve you well in any battle. Still, another part of the system's philosophy is only to impart on the attacker the least damage possible to end the threat. As in, 10 wounded is better than 1 dead. The Russian martial art stresses self-defense, not aggression towards others. Where necessary, act with appropriate firmness, but never in a callous or careless way. Number three, think continuously. Don't be closed-minded. There are solutions for most any situation. Consider the possibilities. When in a fight, it's the body that does the thinking, but to properly understand your place in the world and the ramifications of your actions, you must not turn yourself off to the intellectual side. Number four, do not rely on rules. Every situation is different. Your body and your intuition will find the answers and the proper response. There are no fixed katas, responses, or rituals here, no specific guidelines for specific situations. You rely more on intuition. There are an infinite number of possible combat situations in the world, and an equal number of possible responses. The only rule in the Russian martial art is that there are no rules, only moral limitations. Number five, understand that it's not the weapon that does harm, but the person. A weapon is just an extension of a person. When you're fighting, you should never concentrate on the weapon, but the actual attacker. Again, awareness and focus should be widened. It's not the weapon that will do you harm, but the person wielding it. It's natural to stare at a knife or a gun, but it shouldn't take up your attention. As we mentioned above, eyes should be directed above the attacker. This is an early, earlier part of the book, but maybe we can discuss that on a later podcast. <laughs> if you can't take your attention off the weapon, the fight will probably not end well for you. Number six, accept the necessity of fear and anger. You must be aware of the fear and anger inside of you. A little of each can be very helpful. Fear keeps you from becoming overconfident or falsely believing you're in control all the time. If you don't have fear, you won't respect your attacker or the dynamics of the situation you're in. You'll get too cocky and you'll pay the price. Similarly, anger keeps you from becoming overconfident or sloppy. When not properly controlled, it can get out of control and lead you to do foolish things. When not felt at all, you lose motivation. But anger, and the proper level, anger at the proper level can keep you sharp, aware, and moving without constraint. Experiencing fear and anger will ensure that you take your attacker seriously. This is something that a lot of martial artists don't do. Instead of allowing fear of opponents, they attempt to replace that fear with the memorization of certain moves. Memorized moves are no match for the kind of awareness and care that fear can provide. It's a mistake not to respect and fear your opponent to some degree. Number seven, slip away without breaking contact. This is one of the most involved principles we'll talk about. Maintaining control of the attacker and of the situation are of the essence. If an attacker grabs hold of you, it's not necessarily bad. In fact, it's good to allow him to grab you. That way you can know where he is. You're aware of the exact location and can fight other people simultaneously if necessary. Your first instinct may be to separate from him, but that's not the idea here. Of course, as he holds on, you must bring him under control. You must do enough damage to render him harmless but you slip away from him only in the respect that you neutralize him so that he can't hurt you. At the same time, you allow him to keep a hold of you so you know where he is and you can monitor his actions. You can even use him as a human shield if need be. There's also a psychological angle here. You continue to aggravate your attacker as you control him. He may try to move himself away, but you don't let him. You stay close. You may move away from a punch or a kick, but one part of your body always remains in contact with him. You never really break contact until the attacker is totally neutralized. 
the inability to escape psychologically weakens and upsets the attacker, thus bringing him even more under your control. Number eight, don't be self-conscious about how you look. While this certainly applies to combat, I'd like to discuss this principle more in terms of training. I always tell my students that nobody is a superman. I'll even laugh at my own movements in class. I try to set an example of not being self-conscious so that it's passed on to my students. If you feel awkward or clumsy, that will also make your body feel heavy and not very mobile. It will bring you down psychologically and make your movements seem ponderous, slow, and too great an effort. The self-consciousness you feel will also kill your awareness of what's going on around you. It over-centers your focus and brings you down to earth in a very negative way. Where movement should seem like flight in the Russian martial art, feeling clumsy or funny will make you feel like your feet are glued to the floor. If you're afraid to look awkward or funny, you're lengthening your process of becoming skilled. If you treat yourself with a sense of humor and understand that one is always a student, mastery will come to you a lot quicker and so will the respect of others. Number nine, do everything with awareness and relaxation. We stress this throughout the book. Expanding awareness to your total environment is a big part of mastering the Russian system. This principle also includes taking responsibility for your actions. Much as you become aware of the world around you as you live or fight, you must also become aware of those things that you leave behind. By relaxation, we're not only talking about physical relaxation, we're talking about relaxing your mental approach so that you aren't evaluative and thinking all the time about situations and your possible responses to them. Remember, you should not worry. You should be a man of action, not activity. Likewise, your response to a situation should not be tension and worry, but instinct, reflex, and natural movement. Finally, number 10, always perform with the least possible effort. I like this one. <laughs> you don't need to be super strong or powerful to become a master of the Russian system. Like most other martial arts, we rely on leverage and technique instead of brute strength. You should be light and natural, relaxing as you move and expending only the energy necessary. Heavy displays of strength and power may rob you of technique and will certainly rob you of energy and endurance. This will leave you with no reserve for the situations and the responsibilities you may have to face after the fight. You may end up winning the battle, but ultimately losing the war because you spent yourself unnecessarily. There you go. Right. As good a place as any to end it. Well, yeah. Thanks very much for uh, taking the time again today, Howie. Uh, maybe we can pick up some of those uh, other points later on. Yeah, we'll have to think about. Thank you. Cheers. If you'd like to find out more about training at NC Sistema, you can visit us online at www.ncsistema.com. Mm -hmm.